You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Basic hip. Welcome to a bonus episode of the Jazz Session. I'm so glad you're here. If you're hearing this before anybody else, it's because you're a member, you're supporting the show, and more importantly, you're supporting the archives. The archives are free to everybody, but that costs a fair amount of money because there's 16 years worth of episodes, and that's a lot of data and a lot of bandwidth because they get downloaded a lot, and it's really your... Uh, membership contributions that go directly toward keeping them free for everyone. It's always been my goal that this show would just be a massive archive of conversations with creative people that anybody could access anytime they wanted to. That has always been the case. And for as long as there are folks like you, it always will be. So thanks a lot. One of the people that I've known, uh, and I, I guess using kind of known in some sense for many, many years uh, is my guest today. Uh, we encountered each other of through the jazz world uh, because he's a performer, although that's not what we're primarily going to focus on today. And then over the years, we just keep encountering one another. Uh, we have worked in the same field, both on the jazz side and uh, the radio side at various times. And uh, we've just always, I think, had kind of a similar approach to the world and gotten along well, even though we've never met. And uh, I don't know if we've ever had a particularly long conversation about our lives or anything. We just keep intersecting. And at least on my end, it's always really, really nice when that happens. My guest is Jason Parker. Jason, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, man. It's really a pleasure to be here. And uh, I, I have similar feelings uh, towards you after all of these years of air quotes, knowing each other. Um, it's just it's just uh, it's fun to watch you and see what's going on in your world. And I love your writings and, and your photos and everything you do, man. So I, I appreciate you having me on again. Well, thank you. That's very, very kind of you. So I'm here. Uh, we're, we are here today because you are a record collector. And I kind of feel like in the jazz world particularly, which is, I think, where a lot of the listeners to this conversation are going to come from, I bet there's a lot of people who look at all the cool jazz records there have been, like as a physical medium, all the amazing artwork and, you know, Blue Note, of course, pops into the brain. But I mean, I think particularly there's a recent book of Sun Ra album artwork that's come out that's, mm -hmm. you know, just stunning. And there's so many cool labels that had amazing artwork. It's such a great way to collect jazz music and to get, you know, the liner notes on the back and the lists of personnel and all that stuff. But I think, I certainly know this is true for me. I think it can be daunting to figure out how do I even start to do this. And so I thought as we begin this conversation, maybe that's where we could start. If you're looking at this as a fan of the music and thinking, I have no idea where to even begin to collect jazz records, where do I begin? It's a great question. And 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 this particular moment that we're living in is a great time to dive in because, you know, over the last decade or so, um, I'm sure, you know, it's not a surprise to hear that there has been a vinyl resurgence. And, um, you know, everybody is now making vinyl again. Um, and by the way, I use the, I use the singular vinyl. I don't use the plural vinyls. I'm just, okay. Right uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, everybody's making records again, which is really awesome. And, um, you know, nowadays the records that are being produced are sort of in two camps. There's just the, let's rush the vinyl out there because we know people want it and we'll sell it for $15, $20, which is great. 
then there's the let's go after the people who are really into like sound quality. So there's, you know, like for, for instance, Blue Note Records has a couple of different series that they've released over the last few years, um, which focuses on putting out really good sounding records at at relatively affordable prices. We're talking now like, you know, 25 to $35 a record. But um, for instance, Blue Note has this current series called the Tone Poet series, and they have been going back into their into their archives and pulling out the original master tapes, which are mostly mono, right? And making these beautiful mono copies of records that for the last decades have only been available in stereo or have not been available at all or have been available with really cheap pressing. So um, for the person who's just like, I'm I'm brand new and I don't know what to do, I would suggest going out and and finding something from the, the Blue Note Tone Poet series or Acoustic Sounds has some really great sounding records that aren't very expensive. Um, Verve Records recently has done a reissue series where they've put out all sorts of great records like Coltrane's Ballads and and uh, Blues and the Abstract Truth from Oliver Nelson, all these sort of seminal albums that now have these really good sounding reissues that are not that expensive. Um, so searching out those types of things, Craft Recordings is another sort of boutique label that has started to buy the rights and re-release things. They just announced that they bought the rights to this series called the Original Jazz Classics, which came out in the 80s and 90s, which covers all sorts of labels like Prestige and Riverside and New Jazz and Contemporary and um, on and on and on. So there's going to be like the, the market is is kind of flooded with these really great sounding and really great looking reissues. So if if you're the person who's saying, I want to have some, I, I have a record player, or I, I want to get a record player and I want some good sounding records, but I don't want to pay a lot of money. That's a great way to do it. Um, but of course, there are a lot of different reasons why people collect records. And Jason, you, 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 you touched on a couple of those for me um you know it's it's the entire package that i dig um i love i love the size the, the size of it you know it's a 12 inch by 12 inch physical piece of media so it it's you know unlike a cd or god forbid an mp3 right you have so much more information that you're given that's even beyond the audio you have like you said beautiful artwork um, incredible liner notes written by some of the great jazz historians of our time. You get to know who the personnel is. You get to know who wrote the songs. And then for me, you know, and and I fully admit that this is my, um, what do I want to call it? Addiction, obsession. I don't know what you want to call it. But I, over the years, I my collecting philosophy has changed a little bit. And nowadays I'm really into buying the old records. Like I really want to have the artifact. I, I, I love, you know, I listen to the music. I'm not, I'm not the kind of collector that buys things and seals them up and puts them on a shelf. I'm not collecting for value. I'm not collecting for cachet. I'm not collecting for the future. I'm, I want to have the music. I heard one person say one time, I don't need to own everything. I just want to be able to go and pull the record down and put it on when I want to hear the song. And right. I thought that was kind of cool, right? It's like, if I go, huh, I want to hear uh, Cool Blues by Charlie Parker, then I go to the wall and pull Cool Blues down, right? Um, and I thought that was kind of a cool way to do it. But but as you start getting back into the older pressings, you, you it quickly becomes clear um, that there is incredible minutiae that you need to um, kind of learn about in order to make informed decisions about the purchases. Because, you know, if you take a really classic album, like let's say Blues and the Abstract Truth by Oliver Nelson, 
that album has been released hundreds of times since its original release, right? There are so many versions of that record. And in order to know what you're buying and to know if the price is good and all that kind of stuff, you have to know some things about the way records are made. And um, this was the big learning curve for me when I when I got into when I when I realized that I liked the older artifacts. You know, I realized, well, how do I know if this is a first pressing or a second pressing or a ninth pressing? And what does that even mean? So I have there's there's a few resources online in which I'm happy to share um, that have that have been really educational for me in terms of learning that kind of stuff. So if you look at a record, I'm sorry, I'm just blabbing. Is that OK? I'm just like. Yeah, just it's like fine. Actually, about. before All you right. get into the detail of, yeah, of yeah. where you're about to go, which I definitely want to go to. Um, I want to go back actually to something that you said early on in this answer, and and that's the idea of a collecting philosophy, because it seems mm. to me like no matter what you collect, uh, you know, uh, books or uh, some kind of artwork or, you know, uh, flatware made by a particular company <laughs> in the you know 19th century, whatever it is, it, I feel like knowing why you're doing it and what you're hoping to get out of it feels like a pretty important first kind of conversation to have with yourself because yeah. you you started off by saying you know if if you just want to get started and you want good sounding well-made copies of these albums there are brand new pressings of them available and then you were kind of contrasting that against well what i want is the artifact i want what somebody in 1957 would have walked into their local record store and been able to purchase and those feel like very different kinds of collecting and my guess is that in the record community there are probably camps as there are in every community of people who have very particular opinions about what constitutes actual collecting and what doesn't and i guess i would like to to the degree that we can tell people that all of it's okay but mm -hmm. also it, it just it does feel like they're getting into it with some idea of why you're getting into it it feels like it's important to me even just based on what you've said so far yeah that's a that's a great point and and i think when i first started buying records i did i wasn't clear i did not know why i was doing it and and i think and i see this a lot like i see um so so most of the most of the jazz record collecting world happens on Instagram. Um, and so there's this very large community of 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 record collectors that have kind of come together. And there's always new people coming into the community, which is great. I love it. and And one of the things I've noticed is that there's sort of a standard um sequence of things. like I think, and and I'll just talk about mine, but i I will say that i've this is this is sort of common as as from my experience. So when I first started buying records, I was like, oh, this is cool. Like this is a whole new thing. and I love the I love the physicality of it. I love holding them and smelling them and and putting them on and cleaning them and all that stuff. Um, and so what happened was I started to kind of buy everything. <laughs> and sure. you know, there's a there's a collector mentality out there. And I don't think it's I don't think it's just record collectors. I think it's collectors in general. But in the record community, the phrase is when you see the record, buy the record. Because you never know when you're going <laughs> to see it again, right? These are old, these are like you said, it could be a pressing from 1957. So you may not see that Thelonious Monk record from 1957 again for a couple of years. And if you pass on it, well, if I pass on it, I'm going to be thinking about it for the next couple of years. It's going to drive me mad. Right. So I think initially my philosophy was buy it all. Right. So I I, I went from having, you know, a hundred records to having a thousand records really fast. Like it was, it was a it was a very steep curve for me. 
And my wife even said that to me. She said she looked at the wall of records a while ago and she said, you didn't have any of these when we met. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. but that was so that's that sort of seems to be like when you first get into it, it's all so exciting and there's so much out there and you're just like, OK, great. I said, I want that record. I want that record. And so you're just amassing and you're just you're just kind of like it's almost a hoarding situation. It was for me anyway. And then um, so I had all these amazing records and they started I started to getting getting into buying more expensive records. And and one of the things I realized really quickly was, you know, I don't have the kind of money to really be doing that very often. Um, so then this is when I started to develop a philosophy, if you will, because I realized that there were all these records on my shelf that I was never going to listen to. I bought them because I was in that, if you see the record, buy the record mode. And I'll, I'll mention one very specific record. And I I don't mean to, I, I don't mean to say anything bad about this record. This is just my personal feeling. Okay. So I bought the record called spring by Tony Williams. And it was a pretty pricey record. Um, but it was an original and it was beautiful. And I was like, okay, this is an opportunity to own an original blue note, Tony Williams record. And it has Sam rivers and Joe Henderson on it. And it looks great. So I bought it and I listened to it and I realized that it was not really my cup of tea, but I put it on the shelf and it sat there for a while. And then I'm looking at all these other records that I want to buy and I don't have any money. And I thought about that Tony Williams record and I was like, hey, maybe I could sell that Tony Williams record and turn it into a couple records that I would listen to that I want to have on my shelves. So I did. I put it up on Instagram and I said, does anyone want to buy this record? And I sold it in about 35 seconds. Um, And I I got I I got the money back that I put into it. And I went out and bought a couple records that I love and I listen to all the time now. Right. And so that was the first moment where I was like, oh, this can sort of be a self-sustaining thing because i've amassed this you know i I have this quantity of records uh, some of which i'm not going to listen to and i could easily let go so that's what i started to do i started to sort of piecemeal sell off one record at a time like i'm not going to listen to this one let's find something else and that sort of led me down the path of really wanting to sell more i got really into it and i and i uh, one of the things I realized was that it brings me almost as much joy to find a record for somebody else as it does to find it for myself. So I, I it was really fun for me to like pack these records up and ship them off to people who I knew were going to love them. Um, like I love some of my records. So that, so this, this, by the way, was December of 2020. <laughs> so I started a business selling things that most people don't want over the internet at the beginning of a global pandemic, which right. Yeah. Seemed like a ridiculous business sense. My business sense once again, Um, (laughs) but amazingly enough, (laughs) it actually worked because what happened over the pandemic is that collecting, not just record collecting, but all collecting went through the roof because people were at home and not spending money like they normally did. So there was a little bit of more disposable income happening and everybody was online talking about their stuff and prices went crazy. Like the minute I got into selling records, the prices just went mad. So it actually somehow turned out to be some sort of auspicious business decision, even though it didn't seem like it at the time. And Uh, I like that idea of the collection as a fluid or dynamic entity Mm -hmm. so that the collection isn't just an always expanding right mass of stuff but it is 
you know, maybe it is expanding most of the time, but it is expanding <laughs> at the same time as some of its parts are are leaving to find other homes. Because I think we tend to approach collecting like the, that line between collecting and hoarding, I think, can be a pretty blurry line. And, you know, you you use that word yourself. I, I like the idea because I know, for example, in in my own life, I have um, worked a lot in both radio and I've worked in bookstores. And as a result, although a couple of years ago when I moved into a van, I got rid of everything I owned. But up until right. that point, I had many years of collecting of physical media and very little of that ever left. It just it just kept growing, even though, as you said, there are so many of the things that were on my shelves that I never read or listened to. They were just there to be there. And so I think, yeah, the more that we can get into this idea of the thing not always having to be in our possession to be worth having had at all. Uh, it, it seems like a pretty valuable idea. And especially maybe this is a whole other topic, but when I was growing up collecting physical media, either I owned the physical media or I did not hear the thing. That right. was the only way for me to listen to an album that I wanted to hear was to own a copy of it. Or if you lived in a big enough town that had a library with a nice collection, maybe you could borrow it. But in other words, that you had to physically be holding a copy of something in order to hear it. And, and nowadays it's possible to hear almost anything without owning a physical copy. And I, I feel like maybe is that also kind of changing the nature of what it means to own physical media since it's not the literal step one to actually hearing the thing. It, it certainly is for me. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I've come to grips with um, and, um, you know, I, I go back and forth a little bit, but I'm pretty comfortable with it right now. The fact that um, I really dig buying the original pressings, right? And and I, and I, I, I question it sometimes because there's all these beautiful, wonderful, great sounding pressings out there. Like I'm listening to this crackly Art Blakey record when I could be listening to a beautiful, pristine Art Blakey record. What's the difference and why am I... Why am I attracted to those old ones? And I think, you know, part of it is the fact that the music is available elsewhere. And um, if I don't have that sort of artifact that I'm looking for, if it doesn't sort of tick all my boxes and, and all the bells and whistles are there, I can just stream it. It's okay. Like, I don't, I'm not. I'm not a I'm not the vinyl guy who's opposed to streaming. Like I use I listen to things in all in every in every media, right? Like I'm 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 a I'm a I I don't I'm not I don't get hung up on that stuff. I love sure. the vinyl and I'm totally happy streaming records too. So um because of the availability of it, I feel like I don't necessarily need to buy the the reissue because I can stream it and it'll sound great. Will it sound like a record? No, but it'll sound great. And then instead of spending 35 or $45 on the reissue, I'm going to save that money and put it toward the artifact that really gets my juices flowing, you know? And so I think we've now, uh, we, we took a loop, but I think we've come back on this hiking trail to the point where we started the loop, which is, uh, let's, let's focus for the, the rest of the time we're talking on the idea of collecting the older, you know, closer to original pressings, because I feel like. If what you're going to collect is the new Blue Note reissues or, you know, these OJC uh, repressings or whatever, that feels pretty straightforward to me. Those things are going yeah. to be put out. They'll have a retail price associated with them. That is the same <laughs> for everyone. You'll pay it or not. It will arrive in your mailbox. But 
I I guess at least to me the greater mystery lies in the things that you were starting to talk about a few minutes ago about navigating the waters of these uh, more historical pressings, and um, I. I will just say that uh, since you mentioned that you have some shareable resources, um, I will get those from uh, you and folks. If you look in the show notes, um, I will put whatever links or other resources that uh, Jason gives to me in the show notes so that you can uh, make use of those yourselves. But maybe if you could give us some kind of basic guidelines about, okay, I'm going to try to buy a historic copy of XYZ. What are, where do I, where do I start? What do I need to know? Great. Yeah. So, um, so when I started to delve into that, um, I, I really quickly, I don't even, somebody must've shown this to me, but I really quickly got turned on to this guy. I don't even know his name. He's a British, he's a British jazz collector and he has a website called, um, I think it's just called London jazz collector.com or something like that, but I'll, I'll find it for you and, and give you the link. But, um, this guy has made it his life's work to document the minutia of vinyl pressings. Um, and it's, it's an, it's incredible. Like I, I can't even imagine how long he's worked on this. I can't imagine how many hours he's put into it, but he basically has this site where you can go on there. And if you're looking for, like, if you come, if you're in a record store and you come across a, a, a copy of Art Blakey's free for all, for instance, and you want to figure out what it is, just whip out your phone, go to London jazz collector, go to the blue note section and it's all there for you. And so the way that, the way that we identify pressings, there's a bunch of different ways and some of it is very concrete and understandable. And some of it is mystical voodoo, whatever. <laughs> right. Um, so I fully admit that going in, um, but mostly what we're looking at when we're trying to identify records and what they are is the space on the actual LP itself, which is referred to as the dead wax, which is the part at the end of the record where that's sort of touching the label in, in the middle, in the middle of the record. So when you put the needle down at the at the edge of the record, there's like a centimeter's worth of of black sort of black vinyl. That's the run in, they call it the run in. Um, and then the grooves get really close together for the music. And then there's all this music. And then at the end, there's another sort of black strip, which might be a centimeter. It might be an inch, depending on how much is on the record. But okay. within that space, which is we call the dead wax, there's all this information um, stamped in it, etched in it, written on it, like like all the information. So much information is included in that little strip of the record. So on there will be the catalog number, which is the number that the record label gives to each release to identify it uniquely. Um, also in there might be information about who recorded the record, who mastered the record, where the record, what plant the record was pressed at. Like, I mean, it gets down to some really nitty gritty. Like you can tell like, oh, this was done at X plant in, in Roanoke, Virginia, or, oh, this one was done at X plant in Los Angeles, California. And those things to collectors make a difference. And these will be um, represented by like strings of coded letters and numbers or <laughs> like full, fully comprehensible English words or some mix of all that stuff. Yeah, all of the above. It can't. It, sometimes it's numbers and it's like strings of numbers and letters. Sometimes it's somebody's name. Like there's a dude whose name is Rudy Van Gelder. And if you're if you're a, a fan of recorded jazz music, that might be a familiar name to you because Rudy was the guy who basically recorded and mixed and mastered 
I don't know, 75% of the of the jazz records that came out in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s. He was like the guy. Um, and so his name might be in there. Sometimes they would stamp it in. Sometimes in the early days, he would actually like etch his initials. You'll see like a hand etched RVG in the <laughs> in the dead wax. Um, so it's it it does get down to a level of of kind of ridiculous um, minutia. And then like the pressing plants, some of them will just put a letter. If it says T, they would say, oh, that was that was pressed in Tallahassee. Or sometimes there'll be an anvil. Like you'll see a little etched anvil and that's a particular pressing plant or an M with a circle around it as a particular pressing plant. So um, it does get very, very geeky, very, very quickly. Um, but I get off on that stuff. Like that's part of the whole, that's part of the experience for me is like the hunt and the chase and like identifying the record. It's all like, it's all, it all feeds my nerditude, I think in, in just the right way. Um, so that's a big indicator of, of where the, what, what the provenance of the record is. The labels themselves often have lots of information because labels change over the course of time. Um, so it could have a different font. It could have a different address on it. It could have a whole different color, a whole different label scheme. Um, and then same with the covers. Like if you look at the back of a cover down at the bottom, there's usually like an address from for the record label, um, whether there's a barcode or not, right? That tells you sort of like if there's a barcode, you know, it's 80, 85, 84, 85 and on. If there's no barcode, it's probably pre-84, 85. Um, so, you know, there's all these different little clues that you have to kind of get hip to in order to make informed decisions about these older pressings. This is reminding me so much of this TikTok account where a person will, uh, this, this, so the same person each time will, uh, find a globe somewhere where they are. And based on the names of the countries, how they're spelled, uh, mm. which, you know, sometimes how the cities are listed on this physical globe, they, you know, they'll date it like within a month or two of right, when it was likely right. to be produced. And that, so when, when you are deciphering these, uh, these codes and etchings and mystical auras and <laughs> smells and whatever the the taste, whatever as you lick it, whatever else it might be, is the goal always to find the oldest copy, or is it to maybe to find not the oldest but one that is known to be higher quality? What what is it that? What's the point of deciphering these codes besides just understanding what you're actually holding? Is there something you're you're going for? Yeah. Um, so it, it kind of varies um, mostly by label, I would say. Like, let's just take Blue Note, for instance, because they're kind of the they're kind of the kings in, in the jazz world. So um, the Blue Note history ha is long and storied and, and it's all out there for you if you care to if you care to go searching for it. But basically, Blue Note, like you know, many companies went through lots of different iterations. Um, you know, it started in 1939 from 1939 until the middle of the sixties, it was owned by these two guys and they basically did everything. They produced the records, they hired the people, they, they contracted the record, the, the, the recording studios, they did the artwork, they did the photographs. Like it was these two dudes doing, and, and Rudy Van Gelder, the engineer. So let's say they were three guys doing the whole thing from 39 to like 66, um, and so, and they, and they were very, um, consistent about how they made the records and where they made the records. So there was a particular pressing plant that was called Plastolite. And this is the mist. This is where it gets to the sort of mystical voodoo stuff, which I okay, think cool. is so awesome. So 
Um, so if you look at an older Blue Note record, a blue a record that's pre-1966, let's say, most of them, not all of them, most of them will have this little symbol etched in the dead wax. And for a long time, people did not know what it meant, but but they knew it was there. It was clear that there was something going on. And so this thing, this little symbol became called the ear because it sort of, <laughs> sort of, if you squint really hard and you and you want it to be true, <laughs> I guess, I guess it could look like an ear. All right. What we feeling very we've... much like a lost episode right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what we've what we've learned over the years, however, is that it's actually a P and okay. it stands for pla- it's like a cursive P and it stands for plastilite. So so when you see that that little ear, we, we still even though we know it's a P, we still call it an ear. When you see the ear, you know that this record number one is pre 66. It's the original Blue Note run. And you also know that it was pressed at a at this specific pressing plant called Plastilite. And why is that important? Well, I can't tell you the I can't tell you the why, but I can tell you that Plastilite pressings sound different than every other record. Plastilite pressings sound different than non-Plastilite pressings. Um, and to my ear, it's 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 a fuller, bigger richer sound for the most part this is generalization but i would say if you listen like if you if you so because blue note went through a lot of iterations and changed hands a lot there's pressings like you can buy a a, a pre-1966 pressing let's say a free-for-all and you can buy a post-1966 pressing of free-for-all and if you listen to those back to back let's let's just say all things being equal they're exactly the same condition they sound like 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 um Condition wise, they're identical. They will sound different. The post-1966 Liberty Era, they call it because they sold the they sold the company to a company called Liberty Records. So the Liberty Era pressings have a thinner, kind of tinnier sound than the Plastilite pressings. So right there, if I if I'm sitting there and I'm holding a Liberty copy and a and a not and a and a plastilite copy at all things being equal i'm going to buy the plastilite copy every single time even though it's going to be markedly more expensive than the liberty pressing do i own liberty pressings absolutely but but i will always default to the plastilite because it sounds so awesome to go back to uh the where we really started this conversation with the fact that many of these companies are putting out modern day pressings of -hmm. these records if you compare one of these plastilite pressings to, and if if memory serves, this is something that it is possible to do because I think Blue Note, as you said, are currently releasing records too. If you compare one of these plastilite records to one that was just pressed, you know, within the last couple of years or whatever, mm-hmm. do you still mm-hmm. notice that difference in sound quality? You, there's certainly a difference in sound quality. I think it's a different difference, okay, <laughs> if you will. Um, because uh, what's happening nowadays is that they're they're remastering and remixing these albums on modern equipment, right? So they have the ability to do things that Rudy Van Gelder did not have the ability to do. Sure. Um, so I would say, and again, this is my opinion. There's, I, I, you know, 
there are many people who disagree with me and that's totally cool because this is this is a, this is art we're talking about now we're not talking about facts we're talking about art and and so to me those tone poet pressings are ridiculously quiet which is really cool because when you when you buy a, an older record even if it's in really really good shape there is some noise this is you don't mean with... quiet uh in terms of the volume of the music you mean the Sorry. extraneous noises on the record are much yes. less pronounced yeah there's something called a noise floor if you want to get into the if you want to get into the nitty-gritty so there's a thing called a noise floor and that is all of the sound you hear that is not the music, <laughs> right? Sure. Um, which is in every every recording, right? Um, and can be manipulated. So um, the noise floor is crazy low. So you don't hear a lot of hiss. You don't hear um, the air around the instruments. And again, we're getting very mystical here, okay? But like when I listen to <laughs> when I listen to the plastilite pressings. It's almost like you're in the room. Like the 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 instrument sounds so natural, and you can hear what Art Blakey had for lunch. You can, <laughs> yes, yes. The falafel comes through. Exactly. Um, oh, I'm sure that's what Art Blakey was having for lunch at those women's sessions. Let's go out yeah. to the falafel cart, guys, real quick, and that's then right. we'll come in that's and record. Right. <laughs> uh, I'm not you sure. Buy pitas sure. since 1959. Right. Yeah. I'm not sure I've smelled the pitas, but what I can say is that I do hear. Okay, again, forgive me, but I hear the I hear the air, like I hear the studio, like you can hear, like when the cymbal is hit, it sounds like it's in the room with you because you, no, I totally you, get that. You I, hear, I you hear the mystical. like all of the depth of the sound, and I think to me, what what. What is different about the tone poet pressings is that they're they're so um, they're mixed in such a modern way that everything gets kind of leveled out a little bit, and so instead of hearing the the instruments naturally, I feel like you're hearing the sort of a processed version of the instruments, and I'm and I don't mean to put any kind of negative connotation on that. I, I that's fine. Like there are there are. There are tone poet records that sound phenomenal, phenomenal, but they do sound different, right? And that's that's uh, you, that's what you asked me, so that's what I'm trying to get at. I'm not trying to make any value judgment, but they do sound to my ears. They sound different. It sounds like an old recording produced with modern equipment. So if that makes sense, it does. And uh, for reasons that are not going to be made clear to the listener at this moment, I don't exactly know what time we started. <laughs> Recording this conversation, so, uh, but I, I, it feels to me in much the same way uh, that the P is an ear and that we can hear what Art had for lunch. It feels to me like we're probably drawing toward the close. And so, as we do, I kind of want to go back again. I feel like we now have, uh, and again, folks, uh, if you go in the show notes, we'll have uh, some links and other resources there for you. But I feel like we've heard now enough. And I know there's an entire world out there and we were never going to get to it in this one conversation, but we've heard enough to see some of the intricacies that collecting could bring. So now I want to take it all the way back to the start again for the brand new collector, for the person who's a fan of, of this music and wants to start a record collection. Is it useful for that person to focus on an artist or a label or an era or say, I'm going to get fewer records, but they're all going to be plastilites or I'm, you know, I'm going to disregard that completely and just buy the records I know I like, or can you give kind of any 
and you you did this a little in the beginning, but I feel like we're more informed now than we were when you said the things in the beginning. Can you give us any kind of guidance about what you might say to someone who just says to you, I just want to start collecting jazz records. What, where should I start? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say always start with what you like, you know, I mean, if, if, if you are a jazz fan, clearly you've made some decisions about what kind of jazz you like and what kind of jazz you don't like. So if you're into hard bop, then yeah, you're going to want to go and buy a bunch of blue note records. But if you're into fusion, you know, then maybe you're going to go look somewhere else. You know, you're going to, you're going to go try to find, find things uh, in a, in another way and in another place. So I, I think a lot of those questions are, are really personal preference, but um, I will say that the way that I discovered jazz, and I think the way that most of my um, heroes discovered jazz was by starting in one spot, right? By one record. So let's say you buy, you know, mo- a lot of people, if they buy the first record they're going to buy is kind of blue. So they sure. go out and buy Miles Davis kind of blue. So if you love that record, there's five other, there's six other musicians on that record. Right. It's not just Miles Davis. So if you like that record, maybe as you listen to that record, you're like, man, I love this alto saxophone player on here. That guy's name happens to be Cannonball Adderley. And he just happens to have dozens and dozens of records of his own. Right. And so then maybe you go buy a couple of Cannonball Adderley records and then you realize that he played with this amazing piano player called Joe Zavanul. And you're like, man, I love Joe Zavanul. Let me go check him out. And you realize that he bridge the gap between hard bop and, and fusion. And maybe you get end up buying some weather report records and getting into Jaco Pistorius and, and, and getting into the fusion records of the seventies. So, so to me, that's that sort of organic process of discovery that not only is super fun, but it's kind of just there for you. It's like, it's like you're walking down a path and there's a very clear path and there may, maybe you can take a left turn here and a right turn there, but the cool the cool thing about it is you can't make a bad decision. You know, you can go right and and buy Cannonball Adderley records. You can go left and buy Bill Evans records. You can't lose, <laughs> right? Those are those are both winning. Um, those are both winning possibilities. So that's the way I discovered music, just by flipping the records over and 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 looking at the other people and being like, "Damn, I really love Nat Adderley. Let me go check out Nat Adderley." Um, and that's one thing that we don't get when we listen to streaming services because you don't know who's on the records and even with cds it was a lot harder to figure it out with the record you've turned it over and boom it's all right there for you um so that process of discovery is fun and and i think very natural and then you know a lot of people get into labels because labels have their own identities like blue note is the hard bob label and you know contemporary is the west coast label and you know there's things you know there's things like that that you can do so if you really like a sound or a particular stable of artists maybe you really love the artists that are on um you know the smaller labels like new jazz or something like that or you're really into sun you mentioned sun Ra. you're really into sun Ra. there's so many sun Ra records out there so i think there's a lot of different ways you can discover this stuff um and then of course finding the community you know i i, I will say that i some of my favorite records are records that I discovered because of the Instagram community. Um, there are records that I didn't know anything about and now are some of my top spinning records because of people posting them on Instagram. So I would say as a first step, go to Instagram and follow somebody who's into this in this scene and then just keep following people who are in the scene. You'll it, it's it's you'll very quickly realize who the really um uh informative people are, right? So I think that's a really great way to do it too, is find a community of people that you can kind of lean on for recommendations. 
Yeah. And I really love that idea of starting with what you like. Um, and I will just say, uh, if you're listening to this, and it's certainly possible this could be true, if you're listening to this and you're not, not even sure if jazz is your music, you just like the idea of of record collecting and you think this might be a cool genre to be listening to. Um, you honestly, you can Google any, you know, what are the greatest jazz albums of all time? Most of those lists are going to resemble each other. And if you start listening, you can start streaming some of those records and find the ones that that speak to you. I This is a very gatekeepy kind of music. And uh, mm-hmm. if this show has had any function over the last 16 years, I, I hope it has been to throw open the gate to some degree. And so, yeah, I mean, I would say if you already know what you like, awesome, start there. And if you're not sure what you like, it is very easy to spend zero money and hear a bunch of jazz until you find things that you do that you do dig. And if you think, you know, well, I don't know, I've heard some stuff before, but it hasn't really been for me. The The world of this genre of music is so broad. Uh, that if you do, you know, Google some lists of classic albums, you will eventually stumble upon something that sounds like the other kind of music uh, that you enjoy. So, uh, Jason, at the end of your answer there, you gave me the perfect segue into my final question, which is if people, it seems like starting with you might be a decent place to start. Mm. So if people want to follow you on social media to get more of an insight into this world, uh, how can they do that? Uh, Sure. So my my Instagram is as Jason Parker Quartet. um, And... Uh, you know, pre-pandemic, it was all photos of my gigs, but then the gigs went away. So it became all photos of my records and now gigs are back. So it's now a little bit of smattering of both, but I would say it's still pretty, um, pretty heavy on the record side of things. Um, so Jason Parker Quartet is my uh, sort of my main Instagram handle. And then if you just go see the people that I follow, there's a ton of great people that you could follow from there. I also sell records on Instagram uh, at an account called Uncle Charlie's Jazz Records. Um, and, uh, I was very active in selling for a couple of years between December 20 and 22. And then I got a little more busy and it's, um, there are a little less frequent sales now, but they still happen. So if you're into that, um, that's, that's, uh, something you can do. Uh, and then my main web presence for my, for everything else is just jasonparkermusic.com. That's where you can find my music and things about my bands and stuff. And I will Uh, put links uh, to all of those in the show notes, along with uh, some other resources that I'll get from Jason. Hey, it's been so fun talking to you about this. I I think despite the number of times that we used the word mystical, I think we have, in fact, demystified (laughs) this uh, to some degree. And I really appreciate you taking the time to help us understand more about collecting jazz records. Thanks so much, Jason. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. As you as you can tell, I'm 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 a geek of this stuff, and I love I love everything about it. Talking about it included. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. And and again, it's a pleasure to pleasure to chat with you anytime, man. Bye. Bye. Bye.